I wonder if you have seen some of the reports that have come out over the last number of years about a group of billionaires who are investing heavily in attempt to solve what is arguably humanity's greatest problem. This greatest problem the Apostle Paul calls the last enemy. And the problem is death. From cellular regeneration to DNA data mapping, anti-aging pills to cryogenics, some of the world's wealthiest people really are, it seems, attempting to go head-to-head with the last enemy. Take, for example, German-American billionaire Peter Thiel, the co-founder of a little company called PayPal. He has donated millions to a foundation dedicated to anti-aging research and development, and he says that evolution is a true account of nature, but I think we should try to escape it. Maybe the most profound example comes from Oracle founder Larry Ellison, who has very clearly expressed his desire to live forever and who, as of a few years ago, donated more than $430 million million to anti-aging research. Death makes me very angry, he told his biographer. It doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, how can a person be there and then just vanish, just not be there? Comedian and and filmmaker Woody Allen offers a, a different but similar perspective. Allen says, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve it by not dying. So whether it's the perspective of billionaires or filmmaking comedians, death, it seems, really is the biggest quandary that we human beings just can't figure out. We just can't get our arms around it. It really is the last and greatest enemy. So is there anything that can be done about this? What exactly about death gives us such human determination to overcome it? Is it really as cold and futile as it seems? And how should we be living today in light of what death might have for us tomorrow? These are the types of questions that we ask today of our next passage from the book of Ecclesiastes. We're in a series called The Meaningful Life And long before cryogenics and anti-aging research, the the preacher king of Ecclesiastes offers us some super helpful insight into this topic and into this problem. So so let's meet there together in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. You'll find this, this passage in this book, in fact, kind of like right smack dab in the middle of your Bibles. If you go halfway, you'll be close. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, and we will look today at verses 1 to 12. Let's hear God's word together, and then we will unpack it afterward. Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, 
As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. There is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate, their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go. Eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. This is God's word. We thank him for it. So as chapter 9 begins, the preacher king continues in his musings. All this I laid to heart, a phrase we've heard many times before. And, and he's piggybacking his previous thoughts from the end of chapter 8. You might remember about how man is, is just unable to discern, unable to figure out and really know exactly what God is doing in the world. And, and while we absolutely rejoice in verse 1 that, that the righteous and the wise are in fact in the hands of a sovereign God, that's not exactly his point because he says in the end and from our perspective, man really can't tell whether it's love or hate, whether God is, is really for or against us. And he bases this thought on the inevitability of death. Death, he says, is inevitable and unescapable. Verse 2, it is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, the, the good and the evil, clean and unclean. And so he paints a contrasting picture for us. We have two groups here. On, on the one hand, we have the righteous, the good, the clean, and then on the other hand, we have the wicked, the evil, and the unclean. But, he says, in the end, they both die. Death doesn't discriminate between the good and, and the evil. Verse 2, as the good one is, so is the sinner. They're, they're in the same category. Death takes everyone all the same. And this, he says, is a great evil. 
Verse 3, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event, death, happens to all. Theologian Don Carson says, there is a school of thought in Christian circles that almost views death as so much of a blessing that you're not allowed to cry. But in the Bible, Carson says, death is an enemy. It is ugly. It is to be revered. It's repulsive. Never pretend otherwise. Got me thinking about a couple of names that have been in the news over the last number of months. One is Jeffrey Epstein. The other is Ravi Zacharias. Jeffrey Epstein was an American financier and also a convicted sex offender. His exploits have have recently been documented in a popular Netflix documentary, and while I haven't seen the documentary, it is clear to anyone who knows this story that his crimes were heinous, they were unthinkable, they were despicable. Then you have Ravi Zacharias, who was, as most of you know, a Christian evangelist, apologist, and author. Ravi would lecture and defend the claims of Christianity at university campuses around the world, and his quick wit and gentle tone, I know, were were a blessing to many Christians, probably many of you, and, and seekers of truth. And yet, in the end, both of these men died. The same end that came to Jeffrey Epstein came to Ravi Zacharias. Now, now wait a minute. You might say, Ravi Zacharias doesn't deserve the same end as Jeffrey Epstein. That's wrong. There's There's something twisted about that. And that is exactly the tension and the evil that the preacher king wants us to feel as we think about death. Verse 3 continues along this pretty dark reflection by connecting the evil of death to the evil of life. Verse 3, also he says, by the way, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live and after that they go to the dead. The evil and wickedness of human beings can, can be traced all the way back to the early chapters of Genesis. We see it from the rebellion in the garden where death began as a consequence to sin to the days of Noah, where God observed that the wickedness of man was great and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, continually. So we have evil in the madness of life and evil in the consequence of death. Verse 4, sort of, kind of offers a small shred of hope with a well-known proverb. You've probably heard it. A living dog is better than a dead lion. Not exactly a hearty encouragement as dogs were, were pretty gross and despised creatures in the ancient world. But, but hey, at least the living know that they will die, right? The dead, on the other hand, verse 5, know nothing and they will have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. And the not-so-proverbial nail in the coffin, verse 6, their love and hate, meaning the dead, envy have already perished, and forever they will have no more share in all that is done under the sun. In other words, death takes, and it takes, and it takes, 
every opportunity that we have in this life, as fleeting as they might seem, death is inevitable. Death is inequitable. Death is final. Game, set, match. Over half a million people in the United States of America have died this year alone from cancer or heart disease. I won't even go into the COVID statistics. And these aren't just hypothetical statistics. I mean, many of you know and have tasted and felt the bitterness of death among your friends and and among your family this year. And, And I wonder just in this kind of culture of death that we're living in right now, what effect that might have on us. I mean, this is, this is pretty heavy stuff if we're honest. All this talk of death can leave, leave us feeling uncertain, can leave us feeling anxious and, and depressed and, and even fatalistic, right? I mean, why go on? I mean, what's the point? I'll be really honest. This whole pandemic has me in a deep funk some days. It's hard to get out of. I wonder, wonder if you've been there. I wonder if you are there. Because if it's one thing that we've learned from the book of Ecclesiastes is that life under the sun is really hard. You know, we followed the preacher king's musings about the vanity of work and, you know, then the vanity of pleasure and the vanity of wealth and the vanity of relationships, even the vanity of wisdom. And now we have come all the way down to the bottom, to the place where death reigns. Where could we possibly go from here? What could he possibly have to say to us that could be helpful in the face of the inevitability of death? Well, interestingly, surprisingly, the preacher king leads into an unabashed, full-tilt admonition to the joy of life. Wait, what? After all of that? After all of that, we get the joy of life. But take a look at verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. Verse 8, let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. He's shining the spotlight on the joy of life. And one of the keys to really understanding the full thrust of this passage is that we've got to recognize what's going on with the literary structure. We've got to look at the language and the tone because you see the author has talked about the joy of life before but not like this. Before he would muse chapter 2, I perceived that there's nothing better than to be joyful and to do good. Before in chapter 5 he would counsel, behold, What I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment. But now, now he is admonishing. Look at all of the imperatives in this section, verses 7 to 10. Go, eat, drink, let, enjoy, do. These these are not suggestions. This is not good advice. These are commands. Very, very unique literary structure to this book and it shows us just how important this is the point he is trying to make here is significant so let's just take a a deeper look at each of these imperatives first verse three go 
Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. There is something about a good meal. Not just ingesting and taking in proteins and carbohydrates to fuel the body. There's this intangible joy, this intimacy, this refreshment that can happen around the table. The New Testament absolutely picks up on this. We see it in places like Acts chapter 2 where the early church would day by day attend the temple together and break bread in their homes and receive their food with glad and generous hearts. One of the books in our home that gets a lot of use is called Every Moment Holy by Douglas Cain McKelvey. I commend it to you. It's a book of liturgies for everyday life. And one is called Feasting with Friends. This is an excerpt. It says, bless us, O Lord, in this feast. Bless us as we linger over our cups, over tables laden with good things, as we relish the delights of varied texture and flavor, aromas and spices, of dishes prepared as acts of love and blessing, of sweet delights made sweeter by the communion of saints. Verse 8 continues to the admonishment to enjoy life. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. White garments were celebratory garments, whether for feasts or parades or for worship. Oil was the perfume of the ancient world. Sharply contrast this picture with the picture of putting on sackcloth and ashes for times of grief and mourning. What he's saying is, folks, get dressed up. Clean yourself up, take a shower, put on your best cologne. You know, when I got up here in a suit this morning, some of y'all thought I had a funeral to preach after this. Nope. I'm here, brothers and sisters, to celebrate with you. And if you were allowed within six feet of me, you would smell me as well. I went seven full sprays with my cologne this morning. Interestingly, verse 8 not only communicates the urgency to enjoy life, it also communicates the frequency with which we are to do it. Notice the language, let your garments always be white. He picks up on this later in verse 9. You see, we are commanded to this level of joy, not just on our good days, but every day. And it's in the combination of urgency and frequency to enjoy life that we really find the distilled essence of this passage. And it's that when, when we're facing all that death takes, we're to enjoy all the life that God gives. When facing all that death takes, we should and must enjoy the life that God gives. Verse 9 pushes the case even further. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Here we could say so much about the joy of Christian marriage, about the joy of mutually pursuing Jesus together, the joy of raising children together, the joy of struggling together, the joy of growing old together. Verse 10 speaks to our work. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you're going. Death is coming, he says. So whatever your task is for the day, whether work or school or laundry, do it with everything you've got. Because when faced with all that death takes, 
enjoy all that God gives. Now, an obvious temptation here is to think about this part of our text as a kind of license to full-tilt hedonism, right? The unbridled pursuit of pleasure. But these pleasures aren't to be enjoyed as an end to themselves. The, The preachers already warned us about that kind of vanity. This kind of enjoyment is rooted in something else, something much deeper, something much richer. And so the preacher not only gives us the exhortation to enjoy life, he tells us why. Look back at verse 7. This is fascinating. Go, eat, drink, for, here it is, God has already approved what you do. What a curious little phrase. God has already approved what you do. Think back to Genesis 1, if you will. After God powerfully creates the world out of nothing, he stands back and observes his creation and declares it good. Genesis 2 and verse 9, out of the ground the Lord made spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. After creating the world good, he gives it to his very good creatures, right? Adam and Eve for their enjoyment and for their care and for their satisfaction. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So to say that God approves of your enjoyment of life is to put God right in the middle of the equation. To eat and drink is one thing, but to eat and drink with God in view, that is the kind of joy that the preacher is after. To know that we, the people of God, have his approval to enjoy life should take our joy way up to the next level. You know, honestly, I think one of the great tragedies of Christian witness is when the world looks into our churches and observes that we Christians are a bunch of sticks in the mud. They look in, and at times they see sullen, grumpy, gloomy, angry faces. They see modern-day asceticism. That's the pseudo-religious self-denial of pleasure in order to gain religious favor. Folks, we ought to be the best eaters and lovers and workers in all the world because we know where it comes from, because we eat and drink in faith, because our enjoyment of life comes with the approval of God Almighty. 1 Timothy 4 says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. For it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. Earlier, Paul says to do otherwise isn't just a bad idea, it's demonic. So when facing all that death takes, please enjoy the life that God gives. This is as simple for some of you as going home this afternoon after church and lingering around the table. Eat a little more slowly and with a glad heart. Some of you just need to take a walk tonight. 
and enjoy the coolness of the evening air and the beauty of the night sky. Some of you need to listen to the slow breath of your spouse as they fall asleep next to you tonight. And you need to thank God for the joy of companionship. Some of you, please, go out with your friends this week. Please, go out, laugh, tell stories, enjoy the gift of friendship. Others of you need to approach your workday tomorrow not as another meaningless shift on the rat wheel of your meaningless job, but as a gift from the sovereign Lord who not only has you right where he wants you, but who approves of your good work that you do unto him. When faced with all that death takes, enjoy all the life that God gives. And wouldn't it be great Wouldn't it be swell to just stop right here? Let's have the benediction, Pastor. Thank you very much. I found my new life verse, Ecclesiastes 3.7. Thank you very much for your service. Goodbye. But true to form, Ecclesiastes just won't allow for it. And the preacher reminds us yet again that in the midst of our joy about the looming unpredictability of both life and death, like a looming shadow, unpredictable. Verse 11, again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, but time and chance happen to them all. For man doesn't know his time. Like fish taken in an evil net, birds caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time. And doesn't that just suck the air right back out of the room? After all, the race should go to the swift. The battle should go to the strong. Bread should go to the wise. But life under the sun doesn't always work that way. And even in the midst of our God-centered joy, the unpredictability of life and death loom like a shadow. We don't know our time. We don't know when the next life crisis will strike. We don't know if today will be our last. We have no guarantees for such things, and we definitely don't have control over such things. Think about the tragic explosion that occurred in Beirut last week. Think about earlier this year, the the tragic and untimely death of NBA All-Star Kobe Bryant and his 13-year-old daughter, Gianna. I think about the 37-year-old wife and mother that I buried a few weeks ago who died suddenly in her home. Stuff doesn't just make, it doesn't make sense. Can't make sense of this. And so here we are, like stuck with this messy fusion of the joys of life and the horrors of death. And that fusion, that juxtaposition, really messes with us. It messes with me. German theologian Helmut Thielicke tells the story of a young soldier who on a day off was roaming through a beautiful meadow and came across a bouquet of lilacs. The soldier went down to pick the lilacs and instead 
discovered the body of another dead soldier. He like jumped back, drew back in horror, not because he hadn't seen death in the battlefield, but because of the screaming contradiction between the beauty and life of the lilacs and the ugliness of death. And that's kind of where this passage leaves us. How can we reconcile the horror of death and the joy of life? What are we going to do about the looming shadow of death? We've got to answer that question. And for the answer, we look to the preacher king. Just not this one. We look instead to the preacher king who, according to Matthew's gospel, came eating and drinking. We look to the one who at many, many times in his ministry provided people with the joy of food and drink. We look to the one who often sat around the table with the sinful and the broken and the needy. We look to the one who began the commemorating event for his followers to remember him around a table. And we look to the one who, in the end, experienced all of the pain and injustice and untimeliness of the death that we hear about here in Ecclesiastes 9. And yet, going a step further, we look to the preacher king who declared himself to be the bread of life and who said, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever We look to the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, listen now, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. He can say this because unlike the preacher king in Ecclesiastes, this preacher king is able to answer that final question about death. In fact... In his glorious resurrection and promised return, the Lord Jesus Christ not only answers the final question about death, he defeats the last enemy of death. And in the end, brothers and sisters, we will feast. Revelation chapter 19, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude crying out, hallelujah, For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Do you have your invitation? If you don't, get it. You can receive it even now by turning to Jesus in faith and knowing then that in the end death will be swallowed up in victory and that in the present we can know, and don't miss this, that whether we are facing life unpredictable or death inevitable, we really can enjoy the life that God gives because the final question is answered.
whether facing life unpredictable or death inevitable, enjoy, enjoy, enjoy the life that God gives. And know that that enjoyment that you experience this afternoon when you go home, this evening with your family, is but a foretaste of the eternal and unending joy that we will experience together in the kingdom of Jesus. So whether facing life unpredictable or death inevitable, enjoy the life that God gives both now and forevermore. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, how much in these days we need encouragement. And so we are thankful for your word and that it confronts us with the ugly things, the hard things, the things that we might otherwise look away from that are too much to take in. Thank you for confronting us with them and thank you for providing a remedy for them. One that is both temporal and eternal. I pray that our hope of the future, eternal life, eternal joy, feasting together with our Lord Jesus would help us to look at these blessings, the foretaste of that which will be to come and that we would celebrate today. May we be a people who adorn our lives with the gospel of joy in this life. And we thank you that in the end, not even death will be able to contain that joy for our Lord Jesus has overcome it. We thank you for him in all things. We pray in his name. Amen.